once again, uh, not in the order that we have been going through Mark's gospel. We're skipping ahead uh, uh, a chapter, but uh, I'll put it back in that order when I put the series together uh, as well. But uh, we've also been looking at what it is that we believe, what we believe about the scriptures, what we believe about God, what we believe about baptism as we looked at last Lord's Day. And seeing we're at the table this morning, in order that uh, we come to this table understanding that which we believe, uh, we're going to deal with this section from the Gospel of Mark this morning. But also uh, so that we have a, an understanding of what it is that we believe uh, regarding the table in order that we can have a better understanding of sometimes the similarity we hold with other believers in Jesus Christ, but also sometimes the differences that exist between us as well. So we're going to pick it up uh, this morning at Mark 14, verse 12, and I'm going to be reading through verse 25. So Mark 14, verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you go? Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. The disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new, in the kingdom of God. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that we can read the words that you have spoken to teach us how to celebrate this Lord's Supper. And may we remember your broken body, your poured out blood, but also all the sins that you paid for, of how your father turned his back on you. And Lord, what a great sacrifice, just that we may have life. And Lord, 
May we be humble before you and praise your name. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we want to look at three things regarding our belief from scriptures regarding the Lord's Supper. First of all, the institution of the Lord's Supper, which means the beginning of it. When did it start? How did it start? Where did it start? Secondly, the views of the Lord's Supper, because I think we're all fairly well familiar with the fact not all believe the same thing about this table. So what are the, the different views? And then thirdly, what do we see, what do we believe, okay, as Reformed believers, is the purpose of this meal? Why do we come to this? Why do we do this? So the institution, the views, and the purpose. Now, if you still have your scripture, I'd invite you to turn back to Matthew's account. And I just, I just want to go through the three accounts that are given to us of the Lord's Supper. And just note the similarity with which we find this. So, Matthew chapter 26, starting at verse 26. Notice, once again, it's in the context, 17 through 25 of the Passover, but then we read these words of institution from Matthew. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So we read the Mark account. Now go to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We're going to start at verse 19. We're once again in the context of a meal, reclining at the table. Verse 7 tells us about the fact that it's at the Passover, once again. But verses 19 and 20. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the man who betrays me is with me on the table, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they begin to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. So it's very apparent that the institution and all three of the synoptic gospels are the same. John does not record this. We have three witnesses already. By a mouth of two or three is a thing established. So we have this institution. What do we, what do we learn from it? Well, we'd all agree, okay, that all who celebrate the Lord's Supper would agree 
that this is where the Lord's Supper is instituted. Nobody thinks it's somewhere else in the Bible. Nobody thinks it's some later time in history. Everybody would be agreeing over the fact that this is when the Lord's Supper is instituted. There in the upper room. There in this Passion Week, this last week of Jesus, as we would say, earthly ministry before the cross. There is still more ministry, but it's before the cross, that which is taking place between Palm Sunday and his resurrection. It is in that week, as they celebrate the Passover, the context of those passages, all three allude to that. So they are celebrating the Passover, but there is now a transition. There is now a change. We are leaving behind the Passover, and we are coming in to a new feast. We are coming into a new celebration. We are coming in to a new sacrament. We would all agree on that. It doesn't matter if you're Baptist or Lutheran, Reformed. We, we would all agree upon those basics. Secondly, we would agree on the elements. The passages make it very clear there are two things involved in the Lord's Supper. Bread and the cup. And the cup has to have something to do with the fruit of the vine. That's the way it's phrased in all three of those passages. The fruit of the vine. So it has to have something to do with grapes. It has to have something to do with a cup. And it has something to do with bread. You don't celebrate the Lord's Supper with other materials. You don't celebrate it with milk. Okay? You don't celebrate it with meat. It is bread and the cup. The fruit of the vine. We would all agree on that. Now, I will say that there are some fringe elements probably in just about every faith that do some kind of strange and weird and wacky things in regards to that. Sometimes, perhaps out of necessity, perhaps there are certain circumstances in which those particular elements may not be available. But we're not talking about those circumstances. We're talking, yeah, they could just as well go and get bread and go get juice or wine as well. They, they could just as well do it, but they want to be innovative. They want to do something different. They, they want to, you know, kind of uh, shock people. So, you know, they'll, they'll put out a cookie rather than the bread. Or, you know, they, they might put Coke, a cola, in, in the cups rather than the fruit of the vine. Just to shock and all. And we'd all agree. The, the, the people in all denominations would basically agree, that's not good. That, that's not the way to do it. Jesus gave us the means by which to do it. He gave us the elements. There is one other passage that deals with this. And let's briefly go to there. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Excuse me. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. At a much later time, 
than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the actual occurrence there in the upper room, the Apostle Paul received instructions as well. Now note, we'll start at verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So we have the Apostle Paul receiving from the Lord himself, just as we had those disciples receiving that direct instruction from Jesus. Now we have the Apostle Paul receiving from the Lord Jesus Christ the same instructions. Take bread, take the cup, similar words, if not the exact words, are, are there. Why is it repeated so much later? Because between the time of the institution there in the upper room and by the time Paul is writing the letter to the Corinthians, the supper has been corrupted. People got their own ideas. People were, were thinking wrongly about this table. Even though the instructions that Jesus gave were pretty clear, the meaning is pretty clear, at least I think most of us would say so. But over the course of those years, particularly because of the pagan culture in which the Corinthian church is seeking to live, not only the theology of the supper, but just the mere practice of the supper, how it went about. Apparently, in Corinth, it sounds like the day they had the Lord's Supper, some people would come early and they'd eat as much bread and drink as much wine as they could. Some people would come a little bit later, maybe finish it up. Other people would come a little bit later and there'd be nothing left. And Paul says, whoa, 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 this is not the way to do it. I received of the Lord these instructions. You got to have your theology right. This is not about a physical meal. This is a spiritual meal. But secondly, there's, there's the practicality. Come together. Sit together, eat together, drink together. We are indeed the body of Christ. We need to do this meal together as a body. That's the institution of the supper. Which I say, for the most part, we are all pretty much in agreement about. But when it comes to what's actually happening here, not the background to it or not the preparation of it, but when it actually comes to what is going to take place a little bit later in our service, what is, what is happening? So one view of what is happening at this table is that there is going to be an actual change of that piece of bread and the juice that is in the cup. This is what the Roman Catholic view. The Eucharist, as they refer to it, is a sacrament, like all sacraments. 
it conveys grace to all who receive it worthily. The Eucharist also makes present Christ's sacrifice on the cross in an unbloody matter for manner. For that reason, it is sometimes known as the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Through it, forgiveness of sin may be obtained. On consecration, in other words, on the blessing of the priest, the bread and wine change completely into the actual body and blood of Christ. Big word, that change is called transubstantiation. And the presence of Christ in the elements is called the real presence. Our view, is that just a reform view of what's happening? Oh, you just don't like Catholics. No, that's the Council of Trent. 1545 to 1563, quote, by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change in the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. The Orthodox, okay, Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, fall very similar into that. Uh, they change some of the terms, but it's still that idea of the real presence of Christ, a transubstantiation, a change in the actual substance of the stuff. So when, when they partake, they believe they, they are no longer holding, well, they actually don't get to hold, but when it is placed in their mouths, it is actually body. And if in their place of worship, they're allowed to drink, not all Catholic churches allow that, then it's the actual blood. It's been transformed. It's been changed. Another view of what happens here is that we would refer to it as physically, truly present, along with the bread and wine. This was Luther's view. Big word, it's called consubstantiation. But it's the idea that, no, it's still bread, it's still juice or wine, that, that it doesn't change substance, but Christ is physically present with it. So as I take the bread in, I'm taking Christ in physically. When I take the cup, I'm taking Christ in physically. Luther was opposed to the change of substance, he didn't think that happened, but he did believe in that physical reality of Christ's bodily presence in, around, surrounding, upholding the bread and wine. And so that as you took it, you were physically taking Christ. A third view is that this is simply a memorial. There is no presence of Christ at all. We are simply looking back to the upper room. We're simply remembering what Jesus did. It's a memorial. 
We do it periodically from time to time to remember Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. Nothing else is happening. Nothing else is taking place. I didn't include it, but some groups like Quakers and the Salvation Army don't even think we need to do this. They've kind of thrown it all out. This is unnecessary. It's unneeded. You, you as a Christian don't need to do it. Which, of course, we'd have questions about how do you fulfill then Christ's command, this do in remembrance of me, if you're not doing it. So we, we don't accept any one of those views. We, we look, we, we deny that Christ is any way physically present, as either the Catholics or the Lutherans would, or the Greek Orthodox or Eastern Orthodox would. We, we say, we, we would deny that which the Quakers and the uh, um, Salvation Army and such groups would say you don't need to because we have a direct command of Christ to do it. Probably the, the view that we probably come the closest to is that memorial that is a Baptist view and a whole host of Bible churches and all sorts of groups fall into that category as well. But yet it seems like that view does not do credence to the full meaning of Jesus' words. This is my body, take and eat. This is my blood, take and eat. That, that Jesus is saying there is more there, especially in this passage of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There seems to be certainly much more happening than just, oh, we're just remembering what Jesus did in the upper room that night. Certainly, we do remember that. But there is more to it. Christ must be, this is my body, this is my blood, present in some way. So our view is that at this table, Christ is spiritually present. There is no physical presence of Christ. There is no re-crucifying of Christ. There is no re-dying of Christ as some of those views would necessitate holding. Why? Because the book of Hebrews chapter 9 tells us, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. Then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once, once, not every time the Eucharist or Mass is held. Christ doesn't die again. Christ isn't re-sacrificed. He died once. Clear teaching of Scripture. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, 
but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So I hope you, you can understand or at least are aware of not only the differences we have with others in terms of what is happening here, but also that fact that our belief of what is happening here is from the Word. We're seeking to take the Word of God seriously and to apply it to all of our worship. But the question then becomes, why? So if we, we have the institution, and if we have this view, okay, in, in our reform belief, that Christ is spiritually present here, not in a physical way, and it's more than just a memorial feast. If Christ is spiritually present, and if we're doing this out of obedience to Christ's command, what happens? What's the purpose of this? Why did God desire that the church, rather than Passover, do this? Why does Christ want us at this table? What's, what's the purpose of it? Well, let me give you an, I think, a not very helpful way that we refer to it. Oftentimes, we call this a means of grace. Personally, I kind of think that's a little confusing, right? That, that's what we talk about it. We have it in our forms. We, we use it frequently. It, it's a little confusing. It's a means of grace. Now, first of all, understand it's not a means to grace. We don't do this to get grace. If you heard that view expressed in the Eucharist and the transubstantiation view of the fact of, oh yeah, you get forgiven sin here. You get grace here. You take that bread, you take that cup, you got sin taken care of. In fact, that becomes the view, right? Why do you go to the Eucharist? Why do you come to the Mass? Well, I sinned yesterday. I need that. It needs to wash away my sin. No, only Christ washes away our sin. Only the blood of Jesus cleanses. My action of coming to a table does not cleanse. It's not a means to grace. It's not a means by which we earn God's favor. It's not like God says, hey, look, Bob's at the table. Here he is, my October 20. Bob came to the table. Well, I think I'll forgive him some sins. Nor is it, Bob came to the table, but he really didn't come to the table in the name of Bob Van Manen. He really came to the table in the name of Howard Van Manen, in the name of his father. So I'll forgive Howard some of his sins. I don't earn God's favor for myself or anyone else by coming to this table. Favor is not earned. We use the expression means of grace. To not talk about that which we do, but that which God does. God makes this table available to us so that his grace, which has already been given, that our cleansing, that has already come, 
might be encouraged. Perhaps a better way for us to talk about this is that the table is here to encourage our faith. Why did Jesus want us to come to this table? Well, look around the table where he was sitting, right? Look around that table in the upper room. Who does he see? Who does he, who's he looking at? He's looking at a Peter. What's he going to do? He's going to deny him. Does Peter's faith need to be encouraged? Does John's faith, who's going to run away, do all of those men need their faith to be encouraged in some way? Absolutely. Is he challenging Judas? Absolutely. He looks around that table and he says, you guys need this. <laughs> you're going to need this. Because your faith needs to be encouraged. And it's no differently when I woke up this morning, looked in the mirror and had the razor going. Bob, your faith needs encouragement. Oh, you get to come to the table. God is going to encourage me in my faith today. Oh, not only in worship, not only by brothers and sisters in the Lord, not only with songs, not only with a day of rest. He's going to encourage me here. When I take that bread, when I take that cup, my faith is going to be encouraged. And I participate not in a mystical way, not in a mysterious way, not in a magical way, not in a routine way. When I come to this table by faith, God says, let me encourage that faith, son. Let me encourage it. Take your Bibles again. Go to that 1 Corinthians 11 passage. See, I left off reading verse 26 because I want to insert it here. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. He received the instructions. Then Paul, through the Spirit, writes, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, what happens? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What does that mean? You proclaim the Lord's death. Who am I proclaiming the Lord's death to? you come to this table, you proclaim Christ's death for you. That he suffered and bled on that cross for your sin. He died for you. What does that do? Well, if I understand what it means that Christ died for my sin, that he paid the penalty for all of my sin, what does that do? That encourages my faith. I am a forgiven sinner. I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It encourages me. I walk because Christ is present. 
that which Christ has done is present by faith. Go back to chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Verse 16. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. What's Paul's point? We participate in. How? That death, that suffering, that penalty, that wrath of God being poured out in its full upon Christ on the cross is for me. It's for me he died. It's for me he lives. Or perhaps another way to say it is this. The purpose of the supper is a means of grace. Not a means to grace. It's the means by which God encourages us in grace. Or to put it as I just did, to encourage our faith. Or to put it this way, to strengthen our walk. Remember in the Old Testament there's this character Elijah. I won't tell you our Wednesday morning nickname for him. Okay. But in the Old Testament, there's this character, Elijah. One day, he's, he's, he's had it. He's through with it. He had the contest on Mount Carmel. He won. But it really doesn't change anybody's heart. Jezebel's still got a warrant for his death. And he's all despondent. He's all discouraged. He's all down. And it's like, Lord, just take me. I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. I can't go on. Sits down underneath a tree and just says, let me die. That's it. I can't take another step. God prepares a meal for Elijah. It's not a big meal. It's not a buffet. It's just a meal. God says, eat it. Take it. Eat it. He eats it. He doesn't eat for 40 more days. He walks all the way to Mount Horeb. You think that meal strengthened him? Yeah. Was that miraculous? Yeah. My friends, the miracle of this table is not that this becomes the real presence of Christ. The miracle of this table is that God strengthens our walk in this world so that we can live as his people. You say, yeah, but it's just a little hunk of bread. It's just a little cup. Yeah. And Elijah just had a little snack. And he was strengthened for 40 days. You just got to make it to next month. God strengthens our walk 
by being at this table. Why? Because once we know that we've been forgiven, once we know that we've been cleansed, what would we want not want to do to serve him? We'll walk to Mount Horeb. We'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. I'll do what you want me to do, dear Lord. Tell me, Lord. Tell me, how then shall I live? Tell me, how then shall I walk? Tell me, how then can I serve? Tell me, how then can I love? Tell me, because I'm strengthened now. Because I know your love will never end. Take, eat. Take, drink. But oh, the incredible miracle through his spirit, to our hearts, to our lives. In his name, God's people say, amen. Father, thank you for your word, for its reminder today of that which we are about to do. We pray, Father, we pray that we may take it with a right understanding and that we may live in a right way before you. In Christ's name, God's people again say, Amen.